welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. Today's episode is a recording of an event held live via Zoom during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a conversation between Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon, and authors Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff about their new book, Aurora Rising. A quick warning, as this is an internet recording, there has been some effect on the sound quality of the episode. Here's Chris. Jane, Amy, it's so great to have you here. Welcome, welcome. For those that don't know me, my name is uh, Chris Gordon. I'm the Programming Manager for Readings. I want to welcome you all to this very strange landscape that we find ourselves in. Uh, I hope that all of you are sitting comfortable. I hope that all of you have got pants on that have got some sort of elastic waist. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you all here. Let's get on to discussing Aurora Burning. But first of all, let me take great pleasure in introducing the rock stars that are Jay and Amy and telling you a little something about them. First of all, you should know that they're massively, massively successful. They have uh, been published in over 35 different countries. They've been on New York bestsellers list. They've been working together for years and years. Uh, They're very nice people. Uh, But some things that you might know, you might know, for example, that Amy was born in Ireland uh, but grew up here. And you may or may not know that Jay is an enormous Dungeons and Dragons fan and played right through his youth. Let's make them very welcome by raising our hands like this and saying hello. Hello. Oh, I love it. We're doing Auslan applause. This is the best. (laughs) Thanks for having us, Christine, by the way. Thanks for organizing. Oh, it's such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to have you all here. And, of course, I should let you know that if you wanted to buy Aurora Burning, just log on to the Readings website and buy it straight off. You could do that, uh, which is terrific. And thank you so much for signing so many copies. It's one of the few places you can actually get legit signed copies. Yeah. Um, There's only a few left in the world. in the US. Um, But, yeah, the Readings stack that we signed the other day is one of the few stacks we've actually signed in the real so yeah they're the only signed copies available in australia or that will be for the foreseeable future because yeah here we are here we are in lockdown here we are in our sort of lounge rooms and studies yeah so what i wanted to know first off one of the things that i wanted to know is this is perhaps just a little synopsis of the book because this is the second in the series so maybe if you could start and I'll ask you Jay to start with giving a very brief synopsis of the first book for those that haven't read it but I imagine all of you have but a little reminder and then Jay I'm going to ask you to come in and just give us some tastes a little flirt if you like with the second book so Amy over to you tell us a little about the first of this series and then into the second we'll go all right, so so depending upon your age, we, we like to either pitch book one as uh, it's like the Breakfast Club go to Starfleet Academy or it is uh, like Guardians of the Galaxy meet Six of Crows. So it is a military squad uh, from a, a military school in the future uh, who team up with a girl out of time, a girl who was um, who in stasis for a couple of hundred years and is is rescued by by the leader of this squad. Now, this squad is not the squad that you would choose to rescue the galaxy. I mean, that hence the tagline. They're not the heroes we wanted. They're just the ones we could find. Uh, they squabble their way through most things, and 
No, I mean, they're not incompetent. That's harsh. But yeah, not the heroes that you would choose for us. And yet here we find ourselves. So from there to book two. Jay, tell us a little bit without giving anything away. I yeah, know there's trouble. There's trouble. To avoid spoilers. Book two, after the events of book one, the squad are essentially on the run. They don't have any friends anywhere in the galaxy. They've kind of made enemies wherever they've gone inadvertently. Uh, it's not like they're bad people, but just that's the way circumstances have rolled out. So it's kind of them against the galaxy at the start of the book. And things continue to get worse from there. Uh, book two book two is kind of the Empire Strikes Back of the series. It's, it's the dark moment before the dawn. So everything that can go wrong does. Uh, and over the course of it, we find out a little bit more about the backstories and backgrounds of each of the members of the squad and ultimately what Aurora is supposed to be doing. Um, but that's about as far as I can go without getting into super spoiler territory. But yeah, everything, everything is bad at the start and it gets worse. So what's yeah. the influence of this series? Why, why this series? And Because it's quite different from your first one. I'm thinking about the Illuminae Files. This is a different context altogether. Where did it come from? Jay, over to you first and then to Amy. Um, it's a little more traditional sci-fi, I guess. Um, it's, it has more in common with the properties that Amy and I grew up reading and watching and loving. So... Uh, we're both massive Star Trek fans, so Star Trek and Star Wars had a big influence, but also stuff like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, Red Dwarf. There was a BBC series on in like the 80s and 90s called Red Dwarf. It was like low-budget British science fiction, but it was really funny. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. Um, yeah, so it, this is kind of, in a way, it's a love letter to those properties that we grew up with. Um, but also it was our attempt to make things a little more epic in scope. Illuminae is essentially the events on one planet and one ship, one space station. So even though it's a big, thick trilogy, um, the scope of it is only within, really within one solar system. So we wanted to build something a little more grand in scale, kind of galaxy-affecting events and people shaping the galaxy around them rather than one system. So I guess it was our attempt to kind of level up in terms of size and epic scope so far. Amy, if you have anything to add to that, what was your sort of influences? The same sort of thing, Red Dwarf, which I remember well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we um, we sorry those sound effects of my dog wandering by. He weighs like thirty five kilos. You can't stop him. He goes where he wants. He does what he wants. <laughs> he does not respect Zoom. But uh, I mean, I feel like the the hints of it were there in the Illuminae files because there are so many Easter eggs in that first series. I mean, Easter eggs that still nobody has found. And we sort of just got cheekier and had more fun with it the, lo the more time went by. And so it was sort of natural that I think, yeah, this one was going to be very much a love letter. And it began with us sitting down and sort of looking for like the crossover in our Venn diagram, like what do we both love? And so... That's why you see, you know, yeah, like a lot of Red Dwarf, a lot of Hitchhikers, a lot of, you know, fantastic action movies that we, we love growing up, a heap of Star Trek. This is, this is us sort of bringing our spin, I guess, to all those sorts of stories. And Amy, when you're writing something like this with Jay, are you laughing out loud? Is, are you both catting yourself as you write? Yeah, we totally are. I think the, the goal is always to make the other person laugh because I think when you try to write something for everybody, 
it doesn't work. You know, you end up with something that tries to please everybody and pleases nobody. But if you write for a specific audience, then it somehow turns out to be more universal. It's very strange. And I think in this case, I am always, I'm trying to make Jay laugh. Or for me, the, the, the highest of praise is the comment I get once, maybe twice per entire book, where he'll leave a comment saying, missed it up a bit here. And then I'm off doing laps in my house and cheering. But yeah, you're always trying to entertain the other person. And that is one of the things that makes co-authoring so fun, is you've got that immediate audience. Jay, when you're doing this writing with Amy, how does it work? Do you send each other chapters or you're doing sort of Zoom calls or you're sitting in a bar? How does it work? Um, well, up, in, up until coronavirus, uh, we would start by getting together physically in the same room um, and we plot about 100 pages in advance. We've found that out through trial and error. If you try and plot a whole book, what will typically happen is the story will change in the process of telling it and you'll think of a cooler idea so if you plot 500 pages with the book and then think of an idea that changes the direction of the book about 100 pages in, all that work tends to get wasted. So we plot about 100 pages in the reel, just bouncing ideas back and forth uh, off each other all day. And once we have that locked down, we'll break down those 100 pages into chapters and then divide those chapters into POVs. So in Aurora, for example, there are six, seven main characters. And so we are stewards of three or four of them each kind of, I guess, what would you call caretakers? Um, and we write those POVs. So we will break down those 100 pages into chapters, decide whose POV is best to tell that chapter. And that can depend on who's there at the time or some emotional beat that we want to reveal or some backstory that we want to bring on a spotlight. And then we will go away and write those individual chapters and send them back and forth to each other. So... It's a collaborative process, but it's also us constantly bouncing the document back and forth between. So, so when you, how did you and Amy get together in the first instance? How did you know that you were writing compatibly? Like, how, how did you even meet? What, what's that little love story? Um, the, the long story short is if you're an Australian and earning money in the United States, uh, which we do, our agents and our uh, biggest publisher is over in the US, you need what's called an ITIN, which is International Tax Identification Number. It's like a social security number, but for foreign residents, aliens, as they refer to us as. Uh, and the process by which you get this number is really, really difficult. Like if anyone has ever dealt with the IRS before, they, they are no fun. They are no help. They're just awful. Uh, and I had, through trial and error, managed to get one of these ITINs after, I think, attempt number three. And I had, just to be clear, at one point called them for help. I phoned the IRS and they answered the phone by saying, how may I attempt to help you today? Yeah. Like they already knew they wouldn't be, <laughs> but they were willing to attempt it. it yeah. They're yeah. horrible. And the people you speak to on the phone are not the people who actually deal with the forms. So they're in a different state and a different time zone to the people who actually process the forms. And if something goes wrong, they just tell you you failed. They don't tell you why. They just say no and reject you. And it costs like 200 bucks a shot. Anyway, so after number three, I think I had figured out how to do it. And it just so happened that Amy, whose first book came out a few months after my first book, was complaining loudly in her office about this process and how difficult it was. And a, friend, oh, a work colleague of Amy's who happened to be a friend of mine overheard her complaining. And he said, well, hey, I know a dude 
who has just done this in thing you're trying to do. Maybe he will let you know how it's done. And Amy shot me an email out of the blue, bought me breakfast. I explained how I managed to get it done. And then we just kind of became buddies after that. We would get together every month and just have Sunday brunch and talk through what was happening because we were both newbie authors. We hadn't really published a book before and didn't really know many other authors in Melbourne. So we were kind of a support group of two and we would just get together and have brunch and after about six months, Amy had a dream where we wrote a book together and that was it. So it's yeah. kind of a long convoluted story, but that, that's why we thank the IRS in the back of Illuminate because without them, we never would have met. So Yeah. And we dedicated it to the guy who introduced us Yeah, uh, because yeah. without, without Nick, we would never have met. Yeah. And I mean, after we met, I'm, I'm the extrovert and Jay's the introvert and I kind of make friends like someone like a kindergartner does like, hello, let's be friends now. And then shortly after, you are my friends now. So, and then I just keep showing up and keep proposing, you know, like, let's have, let's have brunch again. Let's do this, whatever. And eventually it just, he just kind of gave up, I think. <laughs> Surrendered. I think that's fantastic. How long ago was that? Wow. That was 2012. Well, which is, yeah. In this book, we named them Squad 312. And that is after March 2012, which is the month that we that we had our very first can we do taxation paper paperwork brunch. Yeah, that was our first breakfast. Third month, twelfth year. Fantastic. That number comes from. Fantastic. Let's go back to this novel that you're now promoting, this gorgeous Aurora Burning. Have you got a favourite part of the book? I think that if I ask you that, I'm not actually asking for you to give away anything at all. I'll start with you, Amy. Like a favourite character or a scene one that filled you with absolute joy to write oh gosh i mean the, one of the nice things about writing books that are just built out of a list of things you love is that you, you really do love it all but i think there is like right at, at the very opening our um our heroes pull off something of a heist and there is a getaway uh scene afterwards that just entertains me no end and Every time I read it, it gives me the giggles. And, and I wrote some bits of it and Jay wrote some bits of it. And it is one of those ones where one of us would write something and then and the other one would come in. You know, there's one line that he added into something that I wrote that just every time I think about it, I start laughing. So I think it, it's, I love it both because it's very entertaining and also because it really is one of those moments where we just meshed and, and really co-wrote it beautifully. Jay, what about you? Have you got a favourite part? I got lots of favorite parts. I think um, there's one sequence in the middle in particular where I think we got pushed as writers uh, more than we had been pushed before. There's like a, there's a sequence where two of the characters get, uh, how, to, how to explain it without getting super spoilery. They are in a different place and they are moving at a different rate of time. And so while the rest of the novel is moving on moment by moment, these two characters are living kind of six months in the space of 30 pages. And so we have to, we have to show the progression of their relationship and who they are as people over the course of that timeline without, without messing it up, I guess. Uh, and it was really hard for us and it, and it took us kind of six or seven attempts to get it working right. And it really was a super collaborative process. We were both kind of flexing all our muscles on that one. Um, and so to see the way I was reading it the other night and seeing the way it kind of turned out in the end, I'm really quite proud of it. But there's lots of favourite parts. There's lots of funny parts in the books and there's lots of cool twists on relationships and growth of characters that, again, I'm really proud to see where these guys started and where they are by the end of the second book. 
Yeah. So I think with the second book of any series, what you ideally want is in book one, you want everything, well, to not just seem life or death, but to be life or death. You want everything to be a big deal. But then by the end of the second book, you really want them to be looking back at what they thought was a problem in book one and going, oh, my sweet summer child. <laughs> and so I think it is it's really gratifying when you look back and go, yeah, we did actually level up their problems. And in doing so, we had to level up how we were writing it as well. Yeah. I'm getting in a lot of questions, so I'm going to flick over to the audience, so to speak. We've got a terrific question from Joanna, and she's saying, how do you get into the headspaces of the different main characters? Uh, Jay, I'll get you to answer that in the first instance. What I will typically do is go back and reread their previous chapters, because everyone kind of has a different tone of voice, way of speaking, way of seeing, a way of thinking, you know, Cal's turn of phrase is very different to Ori's, for example. Zila is very different to Tyler. So when I'm writing a particular POV, the first thing I'll do is go back and reread everything that that character has done and said in their own POV just to put me back into the zone. So it's kind of like a, a warm-up exercise, I guess, that you would do in the gym before you start actually working out just to click you back into that mindset because they are they are kind of different. And if you're not careful, you can have all your characters sounding similar or, you know, a particular turn of phrase that one character used might bleed into another one who doesn't talk that way. So yeah, that, that's just a little exercise that I do to get myself in the zone, so to speak. Jay, lots of fiction writers tell me that there's always a little bit of themselves in their characters. Is that, does that uh, sit with you? Have you got, are you writing about yourself when you're writing about the characters? I think there's a little bit of me in all my characters to greater or lesser degrees or um, something that's like the opposite of me, a point of view that I don't agree with or a way of seeing the world that I don't have just so I can explore like a contrary point of view or way of thinking. Um, but some characters are definitely more me than others. I think Cat is probably the most me out of the original seven in Aurora. Um, at least maybe on a superficial level. But, yeah, there, there's part of You're, the, say, you're I, just saying that because you want to be an ace. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's, she kind of drinks and swears and she's got tattoos and stuff as well. She thinks an awful lot of herself and all those are true of me as well, I guess. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Amy, I've got a yeah. question from Belinda for you. Uh, mm -hmm. Belinda asks, how do you decide on the sizes of the squad or the cast? How do you decide that it's going to be these seven people doing these extraordinary things? I mean, there's, there was just a lot of conversation and a lot of collaboration about it. It's sort of, I've had a few people ask, because we've been, we've been running Q&As in our Instagram, and I've had a few people ask, you know, which comes first, like the squad roles or the characters? And the answer is that they both kind of braided through each other and they both happened together. So we knew there would be a squad and we knew that there would be certain roles within the squad. And we sort of had to think logically about sort of, you know, what type of roles, you know, you'd have to have a leader and you'd have to have a medic and, and so on. And, you know, as we began to think about what this squad would do, well, you'd need a diplomat and you'd need a pilot and, you know, you know, you'd, if they're meant to be completely independent, you'd really need someone who could do anything mechanical because the idea with an Aurora Academy squad is that you should be able to send them to do anything. You should, you should be able to send them to a situation where they may need to fight or where they may need to do an aid mission and repair something or where they may need to provide medical help, you know, a mission where they might need to, um, to mediate something or, you know, deal with a difficult situation. So 
we sort of began to build those roles and then we began to build people into them, but they definitely shifted. I mean, in, in very early sort of thinking about book one, uh, there's a character, Zila, who is sort of both the science officer and the medic and science officer and medic were two different roles in that first, that very first iteration. Uh, and Cal, who's now our fighter was actually the medic and he did not fit at all into that role. Uh, and it's, he fits much better into, into being a fighter. So, so there's a lot of shuffling around and a lot of sort of figuring out, you know, who, who's going to play what part, how are they going to bounce off each other and how are they going to annoy the hell out of each other? Because that's, you know, the type of story this is. I mean, the same sort of way that I've asked Jay, which is, which character is you? Ooh, that's, that's difficult. Is that, is that a nasty question? Yeah, I mean, the thing is they all have little bits of me in them. And what's really funny is, and I think this would be true for Jay as well, the ones that we are sort of the primary caretakers of have bits of us in them, but also the other ones do too because we write them so collaboratively that, that we feed a little something in and then, it, um, and then it becomes part of the character and next thing we're both writing it. But I do think people were always very surprised with the Illuminae files when I said I identified most with Katie because I have that monologue, that sarcastic monologue running in my head a lot as well. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I do like Finn's way of seeing the world not not the jadedness of it but the um the deep underneath you know he's he's very into family and very into clan and very into looking for people to be with so that bit that bit i love a lot uh, i've got another question for you from uh from one of our speak one of our audience members here amy Brittani, and i think it's because she's looking at your gorgeous uh, bookcase she's saying amy how how are your books organized Ah, so my bookcase is oh, it goes Woo! up and it goes all the way that way and it goes all the way that way. Um, there's a space because bookseller's dream right there. Well, when we moved into this house, it was absolutely perfect, except it didn't have any bookshelves at all. And thankfully, my husband is a woodworker and he fixed that. So that's just one set of them. Uh, they are mostly organized by sort of age range so like middle grade YA or adult and then sort of loosely by genre uh but I just so many books arrive at this house every week that they sort of more like were arranged that way and now there's just piles everywhere that I keep you know and my husband keeps saying do you want me to just put them somewhere and I'm like no 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 any day now I'm definitely going to rearrange them so they go where they're supposed to and I think we're about two years into that conversation so <laughs> we'll get there. I think it looks fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Jay, I've got a, a question from Jackie for you. She says, I didn't know that you were a DNA, D, what, Dungeons and Dragons fan. She's just started playing and she wonders what class he would put each of the Aurora Rising squad in. And she's making one shot that is a space adventure. And also, she wants to say that she loves both of you. Oh, cool. Thanks. Thank you. Um, yeah, I've, I've played. D&D since I was 12 years old. Um, I, I play every Wednesday with a group of guys, one of whom I have been playing with since I was 12. So some of my best friends in the world I've met through that game. Um, who would be what? Tyler would be a paladin for sure. Um, Cal would probably be ranger, spell singer maybe. I mean, there's a little bit of barbarian in there with when he hulks out oh yeah true no that's a good point barbarian yeah maybe you can't really dual class barbarian fighter but yeah 
Um, what else? Finn would be probably like some weird subclass, like Tinker or something. Yeah. Worry. She probably starts out as just a commoner, a peasant. And <laughs> <laughs> then slowly but surely. Uh, who else? Scar would be the bard. Cat mm-hmm. uh, would probably just be a fighter. Have I got everyone? Who did I miss? I feel like I missed someone. Oh, Zilla. Zilla would be a cleric, I guess. She's the team medic, so yeah. Yeah, and there's a little bit of rogue in Zilla as well, demonstrated by the fact that you didn't even see her there. Yeah, true, true. She's yeah, she's probably dual class cleric rogue. You two are so funny. <laughs> <laughs> like anyone who doesn't play D and D has absolutely no I idea. Have absolutely no idea what you just said, but I'm just nodding away and smiling. <laughs> oh, yay! Yeah, I mean, at least we're having fun. Like yesterday to celebrate the uh, Australian release of, a release of Aurora Rising, my husband got me like a special pad for rolling your dice on. So the nerd runs deep. Yeah, we oh. are we are super nerds. But I mean, like D and D is actually a great game. Any kind of RPG game is really cool in terms of learning to tell stories. Like the first stories that I told were around a table with like three or four of my friends throwing dice. So that was that was kind of the first place I learned how to be a storyteller. So well, anyone who tells you it's wasted time, forget them. No, and it teaches you to collaborate as well because that's yeah. the thing is, I mean, the way D&D works is one person might start by telling the story, but then they ask the other characters, so you're confronted with this situation, what do you do? And occasionally they do what the, the storyteller or the dungeon master plan, but a lot of the time they don't. A lot of the time they run off and do something completely unpredictable. And yep. at that point, the dungeon master can either throw a fit or they can adjust the story and start accommodating what's happening. So, you know, I grew up doing this online. That's, that's where I met Meg Spooner, who I also write with. It's where I met a lot of my oldest friends. So I think we both had that experience of really collaborative storytelling and of realizing that when someone does something you weren't expecting, that's not a bad thing that derailed your story. That is a good thing that just brought some cool new spark to it that you weren't expecting. I think that's fantastic. Doesn't make me want to play this game. No, but I love hearing about it. I do love hearing about it. <laughs> now, uh, I've got another couple. I've got a lot of questions coming in. But this one is from Katie. And Katie is asking, what do both of you enjoy about writing trilogies? What is it about a trilogy rather than a one-off novel that excites both of you? Amy, you first. Oh, I mean, scope, really. It's the, in, in a one-off novel you know, I'm, although, I mean, Jay does write some very long one-off novels, but, sorry, not very, but sorry, very long individual novels, but um, it's the scope. It's the ability to, you know, you have book one, you think it's as big as it can get. And then in book two, you just blow everything up. And by the time you get to book three, you've completely changed the setting. You've changed the stage and readers have had a chance to really deeply get to know these characters so that when they see characters make these choices, you know, it can, it really blows them away. And some of my favourite books are standalone. So I actually think it, it depends on what the story is. I think there are some stories for which a standalone is perfect and it would be drawing things out to do more. But there are some stories that are huge. And with this one, as Jay said earlier, we were going for a really big sort of wide scope. So it was always going to have to be a few books. Jay, uh, I think that I'll ask you a different sort of question that's coming from Sulfu, who says, how do you come up with all the slang 
how do you how do you deal with all the slang that are that is in your book that the other languages that you yeah. and Amy write about? Um, it's it's a question for which there is no really intelligent answer. It's <laughs> it's, it's kind of you really have to do it by feel. Um, originally, when we were writing Ori, we tried having no swear words um, because some libraries, particularly in America, won't put your book in their library if it's got curse words in there. And so we were trying to think of a creative way around it and we were trying to invent curse words. Um, and it's virtually impossible. I think there is only two invented curse words in the history of fiction, at least that I'm aware of, that actually sound like plausible curse words and everything oh else. God, can we say them? Can you say them now? Yeah, so there's Frack, which is from Battlestar Galactica. Um, that's, that's pretty much their substitute for the F word, but it actually totally works if you watch them. And there's Smeg from Red Dwarf, which also, it's, it's their catch-all curse word and it seems to work most of the time. Like Smeghead, that sounds like an insult. Um, so yeah, we, we tried that and it, and it, we, we weren't good enough to pull it off, I guess. Um, it's really hard to do. So it's one of those things you have to do through trial and error. Um, look at, look at the slang that's being used in your contemporary world. Look at the kind of slang that was being used 20, 30 years ago, because it does change for, even from decade to decade. And then it, it's kind of one of those things you have to try it out and see whether it feels right or not. And there'll, there'll be an instinctiveness to it that, I guess you get better at it the more you do it, but it's one of those things where you have to just throw ideas at the wall until one of them sticks because there is nothing that will take you out of the story quicker than a silly made-up curse word. It's very hard to do properly. Uh, We've got time for one more question and it's coming from... Oh, now I've lost it. Yeah, from... uh, Anyway, I don't know where it's... I've lost it completely. This is what happens on Zoom. But the question is, what science fiction authors uh, inspire you? And I'm going to throw that over to you, Amy, and then I'm going to throw it back to you, Jay. And while the other person is answering, I'm going to get you to think of the answer to the very last question, which is, what are you reading now? So, Amy, to you first, what science fiction novels, not uh, just TV shows, inspire your work? Oh, gosh. Um... I mean, a lot of the sci-fi that probably inspired this would be stuff that I read, you know, 20 or even 30 years ago, which isn't necessarily what I'd be recommending now in terms of a read. It's just the stuff that that went in and and now kind of comes out. Um, But stuff that I'm really finding inspiring right now and really enjoying a lot uh, is stuff like uh, Last of Her Name by Jessica Curry, which is a a standalone uh, Anastasia retelling in space that just... The world building is wild in that thing. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, a really recent one is there's The Vanishing Deep uh, by Astrid Skull, which just just came out, uh, which is asks really cool questions about resurrection and about, you know, if you could bring somebody back for 24 hours, what would you sacrifice to do it? You know, I think Astrid's with us right now. Ish. There's so many of well, well, in that case, I did not know that, and so I get extra points, right? <laughs> um, and you know, stuff like Marie Lou's Warcross, I really love because I think it's it's amazing and near future, but feels like a very realistic near future for me because I see what's in common with today, I see what's changed, and I can imagine why it's changed. And I just feel like the 
the world building in that one is really special. So I think that that probably a lot of my answer comes back to world building and this stuff, because I think it's one of the hardest things to, to do is to create a science fiction future that is unexpected yet feels very real. Good answers. Good answers. Jay, what about you? What science fiction reads, not TV shows, has inspired your work? Um, I mean, I, I'm kind of in the same boat as Amy. I think we probably grew up reading a lot of the same kinds of books. So, you know, Frank Herbert and William Gibson and Arthur C. Clarke. Um, but again, I'm, I'm not sure. The, the cool thing about science fiction is it's, well, one of the one of the limiting factors of science fiction, I guess, is that it's written in the time uh, and futurist, futurism is a guessing game. Uh, you don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, it's like, you know, you watch Back to the Future. I think it was like 2012 in Back to the Future, everyone was flying around on hoverboards. No one really knows what's going to happen. And so even some of the greatest works of science fiction that were written kind of 20, 30 years ago show their age now. Like one of my favourite novels of all time is called Neuromancer. It's by William Gibson. And it's supposed to be set in this gritty, dark future. And there's this infamous scene where the protagonist is in an airport and he walks past a row of pay phones and they all start ringing. And this is like set in the year 2020. And of course, we living in 2020 know there's no such thing as a pay phone anymore. Everyone just carries their phone in their pocket. So I'm not sure whether there's a huge amount of value going back to that old stuff anymore. I think there's a lot more interesting work being done with a contemporary mindset and an eye to... Uh, I guess a different kind of future, but one of the, one of the one of the settings I will always sing the praises of is Star Trek because it was one of those it was a, it was a utopian future. It described a future where humanity had managed to get past its individual differences and unite together and go out uh, and explore a brighter future. So I like the optimism of Star Trek. Um, but yeah, in terms of in terms of what I'm reading now, I am halfway through. Uh, the Girl on the Stars by Mark Lawrence. Uh, this is an arc from my publisher. And I just got sent this one, uh, which is a, a new sci-fi book. I think it's coming out later this year by Lyndon Lewis. Uh, and I'm going to kick this off after I finish Mark's book. So this is First Sister. So I'm looking forward to that one. Lyndon's an awesome writer. She's a super cool person too. Yeah. And Lyndon was very cool about the fact that we absolutely killed her during Obsidio. Yeah. We killed her dead. And and we made her a bad guy as I mean, well. Our reward, we kill her in our books and we get sent advanced reader copies of them. So <laughs> Yeah, there you go. It's paying off for playing the long game. Uh, so I also have just received a copy of Lyndon's book, which I'm really excited oh, cool. to get into. Yeah. I think it's out later this year, right? It's September? Yeah. September yeah. or August or something. It is August. Yeah, 4th of August. Uh, right now I'm reading uh, Surprising Power of a Good Dumpling by Wai Chim, which I am thoroughly enjoying. Uh, and I am after that and, and I, I tend to read multiple books at once cause I'm hopeless like that. I can't do um, that. That's like a superpower. <laughs> I cannot do it. Well, and Jay and I are both also quite slow readers. So, you know, we, those people who sort of pick up a book and a couple of days later they're done. I just, I don't understand. So jealous. I, I envy it, but I don't understand it at all. Uh, but yeah, the next one I'm looking at jumping into after that is called The Gravity of Us by Phil Stamper that just came out uh, that I am also very excited about. It looks, it looks fun. It looks near future-y. It looks science fiction-y and it also looks a bit, a bit feelsy. So, yeah. 
Uh, Amy and Jay, you two, the rock stars of the science fiction world, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Uh, it's very, very generous of you to, on, on the second day of your book's life to be joining us here at Readings uh, slash My Own Study. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you. And to all of our audience members, what a treat, what a treat, a midday treat. Uh, can we all just show a little thing of hands to say thank you thank you i'm sorry that we didn't get through everybody's uh, questions it's this you know this was our very first event for aurora burning and it is lovely to get to spend it with aussies yeah uh, do you know aurora mm -hmm. you guys are quite incredible i'm so so pleased to have been able to bring this opportunity to some of your australian fans what a treat they've all got in store in reading the second installment of your aurora series uh, do know that, of course, we have signed copies at the Readings Online Shop. And what I'm going to do now, as we say goodbye, is something quite bonkers, to be honest with you, and it means there's going to be complete chaos. But it does sort of work in a nice way. Amy and Jay, I'm going to take everybody off mute. Can you imagine what this is going to be like? <laughs> Amazing. It, it's actually, it's, it's complete chaos, but it's really fun. So this is your opportunity to yell out your absolute devotion to these two rock stars. Uh, I love both of you dearly. Thank you so, so much for joining us. And here we go. Here's chaos. chaos. Oh, Amy and Jay, we love you. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.